Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we'll begin reading at verse 22, and then read to the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the past few weeks we listened to God's call to Christian wives uh, to submit to their husbands, looking at uh, verses 22 through uh, 24, and... Uh, I preached two sermons on these three verses. And now we proceed with this passage to the next nine verses that focus on the husband's calling uh, to love their wives. And so if uh, some of you wives were listening to two sermons on uh, verses 22 through 24 and thinking, you know, that's that's a lot of submission that's being taught here. Well, there are nine verses in which there is a lot of love being taught to husbands for our our consideration. And uh, we hope to look at uh, these verses over the course of three sermons, the Lord willing. But not only are we given more detail on the husband's role here, but we're also given the opportunity, a great opportunity, uh, to focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his love and care for the church, his bride, that is uh, held before us all as a model for Christian husbands uh, to imitate. And so, again, if wives see a high standard of self-denial in uh, their call to submit to their husbands, how much more are husbands given a model here that is really so far above and beyond them that, that only God's grace can move them onward uh, toward this lofty ideal? And as was said at the outset of this uh, series of sermons, truly this instruction concerning the roles of Christian wives and husbands uh, are for Christians only. In other words, it would be irresponsible for a Christian minister to ask unbelievers to make such vows of uh, loyalty and love and allegiance after the, the, the pattern that is given here, which is only possible for a Christian to approximate to. By God's grace. So it would be asking for a rash vow for an unbelieving husband to promise to love his wife as Christ loved the church 
if he himself does not have a, a, a vital union and relationship with the Savior? Likewise, how could a wife submit uh, to her husband as the church does to Christ if she's not a living member of the church herself in submission to her Lord Jesus Christ? So again, we might say this really in terms of its lofty calling is for Christians only. Now, that doesn't mean that marriage uh, really has nothing to do with unbelievers or that they are not responsible to live in marriage in an honorable way. Marriage is a divine ordinance, a divine institution that is rooted in creation. And that's why to to war against marriage as... as uh, instituted and defined by God as a union of a man and woman, is to war against reality. It's to war against the structures that God has instituted for life. And that always brings misery. That brings disintegration and confusion. And as that war seems to increase in our day, so does the confusion. Confusion about what a woman or what a man even is. Yes, creation or marriage is rooted in creation. And yet at the same time, its meaning in the most profound, in the truest sense, cannot be appreciated without special revelation, without the word of God. Because marriage is a reflection of the relationship between God and his people or the relationship between Christ and his church. And that's primary. That's first. Marriage is patterned after that. It's not as if marriage just find, uh, serves as providing kind of a, a helpful comparison of the relationship between Christ and his church. No, the relationship between Christ and his church, that's first. That's primary. And marriage is a reflection of that. And such a view of marriage, such a true view of marriage, it's not something that is taught by natural law. It's not something that people can arrive at just by uh, moral reflection it's based on special revelation. And it's not something that we can live out without a supernatural grace as well as special revelation. The grace of Christ at work in us through his Holy Spirit. Again, remember the connection back with verse 17 uh, or with 18. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Yes, we are still considering what a Spirit-filled life looks like. Now in these relationships of life, God calls Christian husbands to love their wives. First, we consider this call uh, for husbands to love your wives because God commands it. Husbands, love your wives. That's uh, That's... In the imperative mode. It's not, uh, a statement. It is, it is a command. And, uh, here we're looking at something that is obvious, but it's something that also requires a little bit of attention. It's obvious, right? Uh, because we are given a command here in plain and, and simple language. It doesn't say, you know, it really would be nice if husbands would love their wives. It doesn't say, husbands, do love their wives, imperfectly, but they do. Nor does it say husbands ought to love their wives, simply. Or ideally, husbands love their wives. Rather, it tells husbands, with divine authority, husbands, love your wives. Now, that's obvious, but it demands attention because uh, people think of love as a feeling. They think of love as emotion. 
as uh, perhaps passion, perhaps uh, butterflies, perhaps some kind of irresistible attraction or or heartfelt affection. And, and love is thought of and defined very much in emotive terms. And if people think that way, well, then the next step is they say, well, you just can't command love. You can't just... You can't just turn on love. You're in love or you're not. You might fall in love, but you don't climb to love. Love is something in which we're rather passive. It happens to us. We're overcome or overtaken by it. To command love? Well, the Bible's not so sentimental, is it? The Bible commands love. In fact, the great commandment is love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, your mind, your your intellect, your will, your passions, your emotions, your whole being is subject to this revelation of God's will that we should love him. The Bible commands us to love our neighbor. It gives us a pattern to follow, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our Lord even teaches that we are to love our enemy. Does that mean that we are to be filled with warm affection for those who persecute us and hate us and we really like them and enjoy their company and just, you know, have kind thoughts about them all the time? No, the Bible commands us to think and to act towards others in a way that respects them, as created in God's image, and in a way that seeks their welfare, in a way that does no harm to them. Love does no harm to a neighbor. That's Paul's summary of the of the the second table of the law. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not uh, steal. You shall not bear false witness. You keep those commandments and you're not harming your neighbor, at the very least. God commands loving feelings in so much as we are to have thoughts of compassion and concern and kindness towards others. And such feelings reflect a right thinking about others. We're to think truly about them, and this promotes loving action towards others. So according to the Bible, love is not simply an emotion that we have or we don't. It has to do with the way we think. It has to do with how we act towards others. And so a failure of this love, this agape love, it's disobedience and sin, right? Isn't that the corollary? Isn't that the conclusion? If God commands such love, and a husband says, well, I, I just do not love my wife anymore. As if this is some tragic uh, thing that just happened to him. No, if we think biblically, that's really an admission of guilt. That's a confession of sin. I do not love my wife. That's a reason for repentance before God, because God commands you to love your wife. And so if you don't love your wife, you must repent and begin doing so. With a determination to change by his grace. So again, maybe I'm belaboring the obvious, but I think it's important that we give attention to this simply because of the way love is often thought about and talked about today. As if we're just passive. It's something that happens to us and it's something that we feel. And if it's not there, well, that's sad, but that's just the way it is. Secondly, and we give most of our time to this this morning, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also Love the church. And how can that be? What does that mean? Well, we're going to be looking uh, at the, the features of that 
love as it is elaborated in these uh, verses before us. But we want to look particularly at, at three, three things that describe this love from this passage and, and these verses also this morning. And the first is that it's a special, um, exclusive kind of love. You notice that it doesn't say, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the world. No, our text is among many other passages in Scripture that speak of the special saving love that Christ has for his own, for those chosen in him before the foundation of the world, those whom in love were predestined to adoption as sons. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. That's a description of the Lord Jesus Christ and the special saving love that he has for his church that moved him out of the glory of heaven in eternal fellowship with the Father and with his Spirit to take upon himself our nature. The love of Christ is that same covenant love of God by which he separates his people from all the people of the world. He separates them from all others and he says, you are mine. You are my special treasure above all the, the people of, of the earth. And you shall be for me and not for another. That's that love that is exclusive. It excludes all rivals. Husbands, love your wife only. That's exclusive love. Last time we read from Proverbs chapter 31, which describes the, the virtuous wife and woman. And it says that her, the heart of her husband safely trusts in her. He's completely confident in her fidelity. He's not worried about her. He's not living in suspicion of her. Well, the same applies, uh, to the husband's, uh, love for his wife, such that the wife ought not to think that he's going about, that he has a wandering eye, that he's discontent with her, but rather, her heart can safely trust in him and his fidelity and loyalty to her because his love is a Christ-like love. It's an exclusive love for his bride and for no other. Secondly, it's a costly, uh, sacrificial love. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And again, we might immediately think of the fact that his was a dying love. He gave himself on the tree of the cross he loved me and gave himself for me. But we ought to go back, back further than that. Even as indicated in that hymn that I quoted, from heaven he came and sought her. It was in love that the Son of God willingly entered this world and took upon himself our flesh in the womb of a virgin. A body you have prepared for me, the Lord says. Behold, I come to do your will. Your law is within my heart. And throughout his life, he was sanctifying himself, you might say. He was consecrated from the age of 12 years old. He must be about his father's business and his life of self-denial and loving service. Every aspect of his suffering throughout his life was a demonstration of saving love for his people. Indeed, culminating in the agonies of Golgotha. 
In the Song of Solomon, we have this uh, description of, of, of such love where we read, Love is as strong as death. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame, such a flame, you might say, burned in the heart of our Savior. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. All the waves of God's billows flowed over the head of our substitute Savior. And he endured that cross, and he experienced the judgment of God against our sin. But it was in love that he persevered through his suffering life and death in order to obtain our redemption. Husbands, think of this. Think of this love of Christ first as a member of the church for whom he died, so that you can say with the Apostle Paul, he loved me and gave himself for me. You are not Christ to your wife. You are to love her as Christ loved the church, but you cannot be such a savior to her. He died for her, and he died for you. And that makes her willing to submit uh, to you for Jesus' sake. And it makes you willing to deny yourself, to love her sacrificially, to die for her, literally, if necessary. Women and children in the lifeboats first, but also to die to yourself, to seek her good. And that leads us to consider thirdly that this love is purposeful and effective. It is special and exclusive. It's costly and sacrificial. And it's purposeful and effective. Listen to verses 26 and 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That, that's the language of intention and purpose. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Such a, a proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like uh, many other instances where the Apostle Paul, he is he is teaching some practical aspect of the Christian life, and then he makes reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's as if he loses his train of thought and just gets carried away as he begins to extol the wonders of the Savior. And you might think, is that what's happening here? Did Paul forget his subject? Well, certainly the best of husbands cannot imitate what Jesus does for his church here. Not taken at face value in terms of what it literally meant that Christ loved the church and what he actually accomplishes for her salvation and for her sanctification. Wives are not saved by their husbands in this way. Only the Lord Jesus is their Savior. Christ sets his church apart from the world, cleansing her from sin and impurity. Now such love is depicted also in the Old Testament scriptures, the love of God for his people. I'm thinking of Ezekiel chapter thir- or, uh, 16. You can look at that in detail if you wish later on. The passage in which we read of God finding Israel abandoned, filthy, in blood. And in his compassion, God gives her life. God washes her and clothes her. And then he enters into a bond of marriage with her and beautifies her. Yes, that's a picture of God's love for his people, of the love of Christ for his church. 
Christ, by his word and spirit, washes us with a washing of regeneration. He imparts new life to us. And he is sanctifying us. He is carrying on his work of of purifying us more and more until that day when we are presented to him in glory, perfectly beautiful, without the least uh, blemish of sin. Now, what we want to take from this wonderful uh, proclamation of Christ in his saving work is the fact that the love of husbands must also be purposeful. And as it is after the pattern of the Lord Jesus' love for the church, yes, it can also be effective. Husbands must be Christ-like in purposeful love. The way we can put that is to say, husbands, love your wives spiritually. Love them with that highest love that seeks their highest good that indeed does seek their salvation, that seeks to be an instrument and a means to advance their salvation. Peter exhorts husbands and wives in his epistle, and he commands uh, husbands to dwell with their wives with understanding as heirs of the grace of life together, as those that share in the riches of God's grace and mercy to them. And that's the context. And that must exert an influence also in the way in which husbands love their wives. In the Song of Solomon, again in the, in the fourth chapter, we, we read in, in, uh, verse seven, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. And here in the context, we might think of a young man just utterly overwhelmed and infatuated and delighting in the, the physical beauty and the perfection of his bride in his eyes. And yes, but there's something else that we ought to see. That For one thing, you notice that Paul uses this language, doesn't he? Without spot, to describe the bride, his church, as she will appear when presented to him on that great day. But there's also something more in this language. And here I refer to Numbers chapter 23, where we have this prophecy of Balaam with respect to Israel. And we read in uh, verse 21 of chapter 23, referring to the Lord, it says, He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And if you know the context, you think, well, how could that be? How could the Lord say something like this about these stubborn, rebellious people who are very, very sinful? Well, in the same way in which the Lord says that about every justified sinner who is washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and robed in his righteousness. As the Lord looks upon you, he says, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you. We are accepted in the beloved despite our sins. Despite the reality of our failures, we are justified just as if we had never sinned in God's sight, but had fulfilled all righteousness. That is our standing with God as those in Jesus Christ. You see, if we don't understand that, and if we don't see that as really the foundation and the basis for sanctification and for growing conformity to Christ and growing uh, growth in the Christian life, well, then we're going to confuse 
uh, justification with sanctification and we're going to be trusting in our works and our, our security is always going to be in question because we know that we're sinners. But in this connection, there's something to say about the relationship of husbands to wives as well. Husbands must not only know and see themselves in God's sight as washed and as justified and accepted in the beloved, they must look upon their wives that way, as those whom God accepts, as those who are justified in his sight. And even as their standing with God does not depend upon their daily performance, nor should their standing in your eyes depend upon their daily performance, as if they've got to always worry about falling in and out of your favor. They must know that they are accepted by you. And that's a realistic acceptance. It's realistic about the fact that your wives, sometimes they act in the flesh, just like you do. But their faults must not destroy your love and acceptance for them. But as heirs of the grace of life, together you live by God's grace. Flaws do not turn away his love for us. They call for more Christ-like love, aimed, yes, at growing sanctification. So husbands ought to love their wives. Love your wives also with a cleansing word, right? Here there is a, a, a comparison that we can confidently make. When we read how Christ uh, washes the church, it says that uh, he cleanses her with a washing of water by the word. Now that, that appears to be a reference to regeneration the renewing, washing work of the Holy Spirit, actually imparting imparting life. But it's in connection with the Word of God, even, that the Holy Spirit effects regeneration. But the point of application that we must see here is that it is through the Word that the Lord Jesus Christ works for the salvation of His people. And that's true of our sanctification, right? Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And so here, husbands also are to love their wives as spiritual leaders as those who seek their growing sanctification by praying for them, but also by leading them in a Christ-like way. And the leadership of love in Christ is word-centered. That's why husbands need to take the initiative to read the scriptures regularly with their wives and with their children. That's why husbands have a special responsibility to know the word of God, to know it more than their wives do, so that their wives can ask them theological questions and they can answer them. Because the husbands don't leave it up to the wives to attend Bible studies and read good books and have private devotions. But the husbands give Christ-like leadership by themselves living by the Word and being able to teach it to show that they follow it. Husbands, lead your wives, lead your family. The faithful ministry of God's word. Take responsibility for that. You know, there are some times when husbands must love their wives in a way that puts their holiness before their happiness. And that sounds a little bit drastic, I know. But isn't that how Christ loves us? He puts our holiness before our happiness on our terms. Sometimes that means husbands have to love their wives in such a way as to cross their desires. But if it's for their good, and if it's according to the word, they have to have the courage to do it and the willingness to face some unpleasant consequences, perhaps. Isn't that godly leadership? It must be a leadership through the word. I have known him, God says of Abraham, that he might command his household after him. 
In other words, God knew him in love, also with a purpose that he would direct his household in God's ways. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. That ought to be the settled determination and resolve of every Christian husband. And their wives ought to know it. Their wives ought to see it. Isn't that Christ-like leadership? That's not all. I mean, there's another six verses. We're going to consider more. It does involve more, but it doesn't involve less. It doesn't involve less than a leadership that is centered upon God's word. Yes, we need mercy, don't we, husbands? Think of what it would be like to have to preach sermons like this as a husband, aware of many sins and failures. We need grace and mercy. We need the Spirit of Christ to help us to grow in conformity to Him, to love our wives more as Jesus loves us. Amen.